let's get right into it. So today I want to take this portion of the scripture and break it into two places and two messages for us, one this week and the, another one next week on the significance of Jesus as king. And, but I want to begin not in John 19, which is where we're going to be, so if you want to open your Bible there, we're still in John 19 and we're still dealing with Pilate of all people, but actually a topic more today. And we want to deal with a, a doctrine that's at play here in John chapter 19 specifically. But I want to begin with Paul's words in, in Philippians chapter 2 as he unfolds or unpacks this idea of theology. How many people like theology? Okay? If you've ever witnessed somebody and you say, we don't need all that Bible stuff, we just need to know that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave, and he lives forever. Well, they're talking theology. <laughs> you know, so you can't get away from it. Theology is important, and it's something that, that we know from Scripture and, and we learn from Scripture. So Philippians chapter 2, um, in verse number 5, he writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even it says, death on a cross. So this is really vital, right, to our faith. And this part is so significant that God puts it in Scripture many times. In the idea of Jesus's, the humanness of Jesus and his part, and the God nature of who all that God is manifested through Jesus in these moments of his death. As you know, in John chapter 19 here, he is before Pilate. We've had a lot of conversations, what is truth? And then last week, Pilate says, here's the man. And then this week, here is Jesus willfully submitting himself in this regard to death. And it's an amazing thing. And this big idea from this text is to say that, uh, that God, some people say that God held back his divine nature. He emptied himself as, of his divine attributes to be subject as a man. So in other words, um, there is no way that God could suffer the way that we think that he does, that, that he did, or live like a man unless God, the nature of, the, of, of who God is, actually withdrew from the physical body of Jesus. Or Jesus, or he would not be able to die on the cross. But if we ask some basic questions, I think we can better understand what God does. And not to say yes or no to all of that, but to say that I contend today, though, that Jesus, as God, did not withdraw or withhold his divine nature so much that rather Jesus the man surrendered his. That's the real crucial part. The human nature of who Jesus was, surrendered his will. In fact, we find him saying that very thing in the garden, don't we? He's in the garden, he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. In fact, that's the place where Jesus died, was in the garden. That humanness. So the God-man nature has two deliberate purposes here. One, Jesus says God communicates to us, which is incredible. And then God speaks God, and we speak human, so God comes as a man to touch, to hug, to bleed, to live, to die, so that we can clearly relate and understand what God is speaking to us by his grace. I'm so glad that God is God and I'm not. 
God, God speaks God and God relates to us this way. But the humanness of Jesus, secondly, is really significant in the flesh because it's a blood sacrifice. And we really identify with that, right? The brutality that Jesus the man suffered is a clear identifying factor to us. In fact, in this room, if I were to put an impenetrable glass shield across here, and I were to pull Jesse into it, let's say, and uh, we tied Jesse down on a chair so he couldn't move, and if I began beating Jesse senseless, um, pounding on him, maybe taking a knife and stabbing him, beating him up, People, you would be scrambling at the glass. You would be pounding on the glass. Hey, knock that off. Stop beating. Stop it. It would be horrific, right? We identify with pain. We identify with blood. We, when we see Jesus on the cross, we identify. We, we, our humanness is just like moved. And, and we, we are beside ourselves. And, and, and so that humanness of Jesus is so vital because it was the conduit where God speaks God to us in a human way. He communicates his love, and we see it, we hear it, and we actually smell it, and we sense it. We can see what Jesus did. We, we identify with the flesh. The flesh hurts. The flesh bleeds. It has sensitivities that we have compassion for when we see somebody suffering. And Paul puts a crucifixion in perspective by, by saying that, not God, that, God, that, that God did not necessarily not display his power because of his, use his power, but rather the crucifixion is, is God's power on display. In other words, God just didn't withdraw himself just so that Jesus could be crucified in that moment or, or God was not still God in those moments. God was still not all-powerful in those moments and, and just surrendered himself. Jesus the man surrendered his will. Wow. Could you be, imagine being asked to do that? To empty all that you are for the will of the Father. That's a really big question. Yet, I believe that for the person who wants to grow in faith in Christ, that is the question. All the stuff that's in us, when we see Jesus dying and all this stuff that happens to him, the kind, what kind of power is on display, right? I mean, that's real power on display to be capable of allowing their flesh to be destroyed. I mean, subject to all that pain. That's an incredible ask. That's, that's a huge request. And, and now there have been many heroes that have sacrificed themselves for others to live in this world. And there are some who have been more brutalized with Jesus, although all brutalization that leads to death is, I'm certain, equally brutal. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, the writer says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy... Come on! That was set before him endured the cross. Now he is talking here in this human terms. How could Jesus the man have a joy looking forward to the cross? What kind of insanity is this? What kind of craziness is that? The Greek word you used here for joy is kara, C-H-A-R-A, and it means gladness or with great joy. Serious? Jesus having great joy in looking forward to the cross. 
The New Living Translation says, because of the joy awaiting him. So we get this different perspective. And in the Greek, we get this same idea, too, that Jesus had a joy that was beyond the cross. He saw, and he went, but he had to go through the cross to get there. He understood that, that God the Father had a more perfect place in, in eternity for him besides what he just saw. Sometimes, friends, I think we get so caught up in what we're just seeing, we don't understand the joy that there is beyond Aren't you glad that there is more? <laughs> I mean, I'm grateful for all the great stuff we do. Seeing Permetric this morning out on um, Ron's Harley was a great joy. <laughs> I mean, that was awesome, right? <laughs> she is seeing her on that bike, riding with her is fun too. But, you know, we have joys, right? We do things. We're on the boat or we go out with our family to picnic or we play basketball or we, you know, ride motorcycles. We do things, and, but that's temporary. That comes and goes like a birthday party every year. And the older you get, it becomes more sad all the time. <laughs> of Philippians 2 here, though, as Paul writes, he, it, it's not about God withholding his power. I contend, friend, that the crucifixion on the cross is not about God holding, withholding his power. Rather, it is, it is uh, Jesus the man self-emptying his vessel to reveal God's power. He gave himself, his flesh, willingly to reveal the power that was in God, that he knew he was and had and is. Jesus was crucified, and, and what, that was the will of the Father. It was the will of God on display. You, you might say, well, maybe that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I believe it will by the time we're finished today. So I'd like to begin today by asking, that was the setup, okay, here we go. I'd, begin to li I'd like to begin by asking you perhaps the most unpolite, unpolite's not really a word, less pragmatic, not kosher, crass title of a message I've ever had. Are you full of blank? You can fill in the blank. I know what you were thinking. It's in our culture. It's everywhere. Are you full of... What are you full of? You know, vessels are interesting things. And the, you can fill them up and put things in them. And the Bible does a good job at equating our lives to vessels. That we have... In us, we are the vessel. I am so grateful for the anointing of God's Holy Spirit. But the oil or the spirit is of the value. The vessel is not the value. When I go to the store and buy a two liter of Diet Mountain Dew, because I have to drink the diet stuff, the unleaded stuff, I don't buy it because I want the bottle. The content of what's inside, the, the Bible uses the illustration of the wine. And so the wine is the important part, and the vessel is just the vessel. And, and for Jesus to be this vessel, understanding God's greater purpose, was the, was the key to the ability to overcome the issues of this life. And let's get into that. So what are you full of? Let's get into our text, John chapter 19. Here we go. Verse 16, some of it, uh, well, we're taking off where Pete left off last week. Pete preached, good, did a good job. John chapter 19, verse 16 says this. So he delivered him over to them, Pilate. Remember the conversation? He's delivering them back over. 
to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. Take note of that. We'll talk about that next week. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews, because they didn't want them, Jesus to be called King of them. You know, that they, had him, they wanted him crucified because he was making that claim. The, the, the man said, I am, the man said, I am king of the Jews. That's what they're saying Jesus said. Verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Although I can't wait to talk about the significance, power, and hilarious nature of Pilate's sign this week, I think we have an, another focus. But this is a very significant thing, and there's a couple reasons for it. Because the crucifixion of Jesus is an irrefutable historical fact. Researcher F.F. F. Bruce writes that there is so much collateral evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus that the historical fact is irrefutable. Historian Edwin Yamauchi calls probab probably the most important reference to Jesus outside the New Testament um, is, is he brings the significance of um, Jesus. He says that Jesus is the most significant uh, figure that there is. Um, reporting to Emperor um, Tacitus uh, in, in A.D. 64, the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, Nero's decision to blame Christians. I don't know if you're in history. He, uh, he burned the city down, and, and he blamed the Christians to take the heat. Um, but Tacitus wrote this during that. He said, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, the crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil. Aren't you glad the gospel in this context is being called evil? I am, actually. But even in Rome... In other words, these people are disgusting, these Christians. Pliny the Younger writes about the tribe of Christians, so-called, that they met in weekly worship and, cru and, the uh, and the crucified Jesus, they claimed rose from the dead, was the one that they worshipped. The Babylonian Talmud refers to the crucifixion of Jesus like this. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Listen to the way that Lucian writes about the crucifixion. He says, The Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personages, personage who introduced to their novel rites and was crucified on that, on, on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that, all, that they are all brothers, from the moment that they are converted. Do you catch that? These people were tight, you know, kind of like our prayer meetings on Wednesdays. Be here. Um, and, and deny the gods of Greece and the, worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. Why is this significant? Because this is, 
not something that Jesus wouldn't have to endure if he didn't want to. And let me, let me explain that. I mean, what kind of insane person really would do this? What kind of ridiculous nonsense of a person, what kind of deranged mentality would you have to have to willingly face this kind of persecution? Either Jesus from Nazareth is an insane whack job, come on now, who would do this, right? Or he is who he says he is. How do we know? For several reasons. <coughs> People avoid conflict even if they're crazy. Had a guy who was walking down up and down the street and, and he has some mental problems and he keeps putting um, trash into our mailbox. So one day I went out there and said, you know, if you don't stop this, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do something about it. Well, he backed right off. He, he doesn't want anything to happen to him, right? He, he's, oh, I, I didn't, I'm, I'm sorry. And I haven't found one in there since. Praise God. Uh, you know, all you got to do is say something sometimes. No matter what state of mind you were in, you don't want to face this thing. And here is this guy, not just the guy, but Jesus the man. And what is he doing? He's willfully looking forward to this cross. It is his mission. It is his purpose. It is his drive. Why would he go and do this? Remember earlier when we were in the sermon series when they're in the garden and Jesus praying and, and he, when he's arrested the Pharisees, he said, I wouldn't have gotten arrested if I didn't want to. My disciples would be fighting. He says that to Pilate as well. He says, my disciples, always, I mean, if Jesus would have just said the word and given a little pep talk to when, maybe at the Sermon on the Mount, whatever, one of his messages, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law could not have even arrested Jesus. They were the gateway to Pilate. I mean, here is Jesus who has so much power and influence because people are following him. And if he really wanted to stir up the people that were following him, and the Romans themselves at that time um, that were stationed in Jerusalem would, have, had, would be, have been really so outnumbered if Jesus would have just rallied people and spoke the way that would have done that and incited people a certain way, he could have gotten out of this mess if he wanted to. The zealots come along with him. All you'd have to say is the word and, and really uh, take, begin to rise up as somebody really he wasn't mean, meant to be. But, I mean, Jesus didn't have to get arrested. In fact, um, he knew they were coming for him. He even told his sleeping disciples that they were coming for him when, when Judas, uh, with Judas to arrest him. So another reason is why would he even stick around? I mean, think about it. If he knows he's facing this arrest, if he knows he's facing death, why even stay there? Why not just flee? So here is an insane person, a crazy man, or else he's God. Or else he's God. Or else he's fulfilling the messianic prophecies concerning the Christ, the creator of all that is. He's got connections with people. He can just run if he wants to. I mean, he's, he's praying in the garden, not my will, right? That, but yours be done. I mean, his flesh knows what's going to happen, but he knows what his father's will is. And I, I know I, how many of you, is, when you were children, you disobeyed your parents, right? I mean, we do that. I'm sure, you know, the flesh was fighting, and we know it was because he cried that prayer. There have been a lot of people, though, that have died in history so that others could live and live in this life. A man named John Robert Fox. Fox was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in May of 1915. By all accounts, he was very smart. He was an 
a diligent young man, and he earned a place at Wilberforce University where he signed up for the Reserve, uh, the reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, meaning not only did he finish college with a graduate degree, but with the rank of second lieutenant. And when the war broke out, he took his commission and joined the 92nd Infantry Division, a segregated division for African-American soldiers that fought with distinction throughout all the conflict. He found himself uh, earning a, a posthumous Medal of Honor for the sacrifice he made in December, one day in December, in 1944. When he was a thousand miles from home with his unit, Fox uh, was sent to European theater of war. In 1944, he found himself fighting the Nazis in Italy. While he was there in December of that year, he was asked to stay behind in a small, small village of Somoconia in Tuscany. The village had been overrun by Nazis and Americans were in retreat and Fox found a house to hide in and from the second floor he used his radio and he contacted his colleagues and he called for artillery fire on the village to, to be directed at the village in order to give the second forces time to retreat, regroup and to relaunch a counterattack. And, and Fox specifically ordered that a barrage of fire land on his exact position. The gunner who received the message pointed it out to him on the radio, assuming it must be a mistake. You, you can't be telling the truth about this. Come on. The fox, however, simply said, fire it. There's more of them than there are of us. Famous last words of a true American hero. John Robert Fox took his vessel and he poured it out so that others could live. On the morning of April 26th, Scientists got to work in a series of tests in Unit 4 of the Chernobyl nuclear plant in southern Ukraine. Soon after the test started, things began to go wrong, very wrong. Two explosions rocked the entire unit, and two unfortunate engineers were killed instantly. But that was only the start of the problem. You've all heard about Chernobyl, the nuclear disaster. More seriously, a fire had started in the light water graphite moder uh, moderator reactor, and plumes of radioactive smoke were sent into the sky. A further 49 workers quickly fell ill and died over the next few weeks, often enduring slow, agonizing deaths. The accident meant that more radioactive fallout was sent into the atmosphere than was caused by either of the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan at the end of the Second World War. The damage was massive. But it could have been so much worse. A second explosion could... Uh, could have caused the whole Chernobyl complex, the entire thing, to go into a full meltdown. If this would have happened, experts estimate that the nuclear fallout would have spread over half of Western Europe, killing untold numbers of w as well as destroying the land and, and food crops for thousands of years. Tensions between Western world and, and Soviet Union might have also deteriorated significantly, but thanks to three men... Who went, who went down in history, but they, their story is little known. They're known. They were called the Chernobyl Three, or otherwise known as the Chernobyl Suicide Squad. Here's a picture of them. As the story 
goes that several weeks after the explosion, the plant chiefs became seriously worried that the radioactive material was traveling into a, a molten flow toward a huge pool of water under the reactor. And if the two would have come into contact, it would have caused a second steam explosion, destroying Chernobyl's three other reactors. Someone needed to go into the pool and drain it. According to most accounts, two plant workers and one soldier stepped forward to take the, could you imagine? To take the job. Undoubtedly, the plant workers, and most likely the soldier too, would have, would have known that the basement of the reactor was highly radioactive. They did know, and even if they could get the job done quickly, they knew they would still be exposed to lethal high doses of radiation. In short, it was true suicide mission. The Soviet authorities assured the men that their families would be looked after financially. The Chernobyl Three took their vessels and poured them out so others could live. And what can be said about the countless acts of military heroism that we speak of often, even mentioning on the 4th of July here, our American soldiers at Normandy, at the beaches at Normandy as young men ran into the fray of an arsenal coming at them. The beaches of Normandy was an incredible sight, Omaha Beach. Many never made it home from the beach, and, or for some, not even out of the boats. As, the, as the, the, the landing craft dropped their doors, many of them were slaughtered before they could take one step. They took their vessels and they poured them out so that others could live. I'm grateful for all these who are heroes. Their stories are compelling and their heroism is laudable. They all gave their lives so that others could live a full life in this world. But that is the distinction, isn't it? From Jesus. I mean, I mean, Jesus' own words to Pilate were that his kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was not of this world. Now, to die for someone so that they might live and enjoy this life is one thing, right? I mean, I think I would give my life for my family or any one of my children, my wife, or, or any one of you. I, I don't deny that I would be afraid, but fear is different than courage. And, and they are two different things. And I understand what, because I understand what life has to offer. I believe in the sovereignty of the individual, what's trying to be stolen in America by putting us all in groups, you know, trying to classify us, but what we like or what we don't like or what we look like or our skin color or the way we talk. That's America's way, but that's not God's way. God's way is the sovereignty of the individual, the person, the, the joy of the relationships and the family and motorcycles, right? I want my kids to enjoy the fruit of their labors. I want them to enjoy owning a home and going on crazy vacations and, and being in fellowship with their church family. I, I understand that there are hopes and dreams that are worth living for, right? The things that are in this world, even, that God has given us for pleasure. I mean, there are things to explore, people to love and to compete with. There are, there are cakes to be baked and cookies, Kayla, to be made at my house. There are chores to do and, and work that gives purpose because work is enjoyable and there are spouses to share intimacy with. 
There is money to be made and money to spend. There, there are, for Christ followers, there is ministry and, and fulfillment of relationship in your church family that gives ful- fulfillment, and es- especially for children, right? I mean, any one of us who are older would give up our life if, we're ca- if we were called upon in that tragic scenario, circumstance, although unlikely, right? I mean, we would, so that a young person could experience life if our life was in the balance, I read years ago an article, and I used an illustration in church. Oh, man, probably 20 years ago. I still have the thing. I think it was from Newsweek. Uh, mother and her daughter were on two horses, and they were riding some trails. And as they were riding on trails, a cougar jumped out and knocked the little girl on the ground and was started to drag the little girl off into the woods. The mother jumped off of her horse, went after the cougar, the cougar dropped the child, and, and the mother wrestled with the cougar. The child got on the horseback, went and found a forest ranger got back the mother was still alive still wrestling the cougar but the cougar could sense she was just about done the ranger pulled out a shotgun and shot the cougar but the mom later died of her injuries she poured out her vessel so her daughter could live so yeah i see why someone would die for someone else to live in this life i do because there are a lot of things in this world to live for I mean, to, to serve and to love and to be loved and, and, and to, to have all of those things. And, 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 and I understand that because there is a lot to live for. There's people to love and things to do. But, but Jesus not only gives his, up his life for our joy and our freedom now, which he does for right now, he gives his life for something that this crowd doesn't understand, eternity. The thing that's so interesting about what is going on here with Jesus and his road to Golgotha is that the disciples don't seem to get it. <laughs> they really don't seem to yet. It's like, I think they do maybe, but it's not clicking. And would you, if you were in the moment, you might not, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't see it either. I mean, if you're with Jesus and all this is happening, you would be in the moment, the sights and the smells of all this going on, the memory of what just happened yesterday. You probably might not catch all the prophecy being fulfilled right before your eyes or the things going on in that moment. So I, I can understand it. The, the, the crowd doesn't get it either. The zealots don't get it. The onlookers don't seem to get it. But Pilate seems to get it. I mean, of all the people... Pilate is the only one that seems to really get it. I mean, the one person that is not only not religious that we know of, but really doesn't have anything to do with it, is, is the one who seems to get it. Even his wife is, oh, 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 is that Mel? Oh, he's crying. I love that. That's awesome. I love that. That's good. I never heard him before. That's joy to our ears. Don't take them away. <laughs> um, but he really doesn't, he does, Pilate doesn't really want to have anything to do with it, right? He's the only one, though, that seems to get it. And his wife is having such a troubling dream over him that she can't sleep, and she's in turmoil over Jesus. And Pilate wants to let him go, which is not characteristic for him. Understand that Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect. He was granted the power of supreme judge, right? I mean, which meant that he had the sole authority to order uh, a criminal's persecution. He had the sole authority. His duties as prefect included all kinds of stuff from cleaning, making sure everything was cleaned up and taking care of tax collection, managing construction projects. But his most crucial responsibility as prefect was that of 
maintaining law and order. He had to make sure all that was taken care of. And Pilate was known to this day by, to do this by any means necessary. He, he, was, he was really quite brutal in, in some, some, some accounts. And, and what he couldn't negotiate, he is said to have accomplished through just brute force. Pilate's both cruel, he's brutal, he loves to make an example of people, and he's ruthless. And here he is, he's compelled by, he's challenged by, he's a little anxious over, nervous about Jesus. Pilate poured out his vessel. We can't know his true intentions, and, but he makes some powerful concessions. He challenges the mob by being willing just to let Jesus go. And he doesn't like mobs, right? I mean, he's in charge. He doesn't want an uprising. He doesn't want to look bad before Caesar. And Pilate's vessel was filled, was filled with pride. The Pharisee's vessel was filled with pride. Pride is a big thing. Pride is a terrible thing. And think of the Pharisee's perspective in all this. We know that pride, the Bible says, leads to destruction. I mean, we quote Proverbs 16, 18 often all the time, right? We know it. It leads to destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, and we're still filled with pride. Young people are filled with pride and arrogance against their parents, and those of us that have employee, employers or bosses over us, sometimes we have that. People all around us are filled with pride. And in our culture today, pride is not something to be ashamed of, as it once used to be. If you have pride, that's a good thing. and In fact, it's celebrated in our culture. I'm not talking about the use of the word pride. We're, we're proud of our children for accomplishing things or, or proud of our spouses for things that they do in this world. But I'm talking about a pride that reeks of self over others and self over God. Those who have put their identity in their sexual sin rather than celebrate pride in Pride Month. Sexual identity is my pride rather than our identity in Christ. The arrogance of many in our pop culture, every pop, uh, every pop rapper, R&B star, star, they cannot be a star unless they have this. And they're celebrated in our culture. Pride has always been in society placing the importance of those that have more compared to those who have less. The strong over the weak. In churches, there's pride. It's typified by the Pharisees, men with vessels that choose the way of the world over their families, or, or parents with vessels filled with career over spiritual development of their children, vessels filled with religious arrogance looking down on others because they don't measure up, vessels of men and women that are filled with selfish addiction rather than being surrendered to Christ, vessels that would rather stand up for their sin than to be poured out. Friends, I think that there are some of us here today or that will watch this or watch online <clears throat> that have vessels filled with pride. And pride is something that comes at us all. Pride gets in the way of us responding to Christ. Pride gets in the way of us experiencing God through worship. Pride is getting in our way this morning, perhaps, from receiving anything from God's word. The truth is, that, your, that there is truth that your pride pushes aside. It keeps us from repentance. It keeps us from freedom and keeps us from being a leader in the church. 
You don't know it, but Satan loves you if you're filled with pride. Pride is getting your own way because you don't like the song that we sang or the person sitting next to you in your row or the preacher preaching the message. Pride gets in the way. We just allow it. The Pharisees were filled with pride. Their vessel was full of pride. Pride is not easily overcome. It's something that is hard to get rid of. The disciples' vessel was filled with fear. Where do we find Peter? Denying Jesus. Where are the disciples when Jesus is arrested? <laughs> they're hiding. Or they're watching from a distance. Fear is a gripping thing, isn't it? Fear is, is, is an all-consuming thing. And if it were not for the Lord, uh, we would really be hiding in caves. If it weren't for the Lord, we would be lost. We are all vessels ready to be filled with fear. Pride, as we discussed, is powerful, but pride only is a defense that we put up to cover up a vessel that is filled with fear. People are afraid um, to, to go all in with Jesus. So, so fear raises up and puts on an ugly face, pretending to be able to be good enough, enough all by itself. I can't tell you how many times we've seen this at play. How many times have you seen fear in your own life try to rule you or, or take over your feelings and emotions? The significance of fear is great. It causes us to cower, <coughs> excuse me, and run away from the promises of God. It causes us to, to believe things that aren't true. Fear makes us not really understand that God has better things for us in this world or in the world to come. Fear is a gripping thing. We find the disciples and all of them cowering from fear. And why is this? Because fear is kind of an exclusive thing to mankind. It's not just exclusive to us. The Bible says the demons fear and tremble. But because we are the ones who are the progenitors and people that live on this world, we understand that we rub shoulders with people who are fearful. People are fearful all the time. I've encountered people that are afraid to be a disciple of Christ because their pride won't give up their drinking buddies or their filthy mouth. Their pride won't, won't, is to, won't give up all of the things that they seem to be strong at. And, and there's pride fills men, fear fills men, and they don't become the leaders of their spiritual families, leaving it to mom. And, and all of this kind of runs amok in the family because there's no agreement on where the spiritual leadership should be. Fear has all kinds of things. It's not exclusive to men either. As Yoda might say, uh, strong, is, strong with them pride is. <coughs> the truth of the matter is, friends, that believing in Jesus only comes by the power of God. <coughs> men and women are never called to make believers. We're called to make disciples. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the preaching is in the churches. That's where the Bible study and prayer meetings are. The stumbling block of fear is masked by pride. There are many ways fear fills a vessel. I've worked with hundreds of people in homes, uh, in, in homes as I'm working in their houses or doing repairs or 
whatever that it is, uh, or I have crews there that are working. I have seen people's refrigerators covered with statements of fear and their cabinets filled with booze because their vessel is filled with fear. They can't face life without their crutches. And I've watched as they have television playing to their children, discipling their children with parents working double overtime to have a nice car and house and toys. I have feared myself working two jobs in ministry rather than trusting the Lord to meet my needs. I feared that I would not have a life good enough and I would be without. People are filled with fear because everyone else has it. Or uh, how come I can't have it and I, I wanted it, but I can't. I have met women filled with fear because their husband was leaving and would let, be left them all alone. I have, been I have instilled fear in others that I've had to heal I've seen fear in young people because they haven't found that perfect someone and the, their life seems to be so unbearable without it. Fear is paralyzing. Fear immobilizes you and, and makes you takes away the victory that, that belongs to you, that comes from Jesus. Vessels that are filled with fear produce a life of hopelessness and anxiety, void of purpose. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Fear is a terrible, terrible thing. It consumes us. The disciples were filled with fear. Fear is something that we succumb to in this world sometimes. Having it in our vessel isn't a good feeling. The crowd's vessel was filled with anger. I'm sure none of you have been filled with anger before. There's no angry people here. You are all so sweet, loving, and kind. All the time, men are looking at their wives going, you know you are, baby. Consider how the crowd is all worked up here. As a young man, I really struggled with anger. A quick-tempered man, a rebellious heart. I, I would, uh, I mean, I, I knew James 1.20, that the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. I knew these things. I grew up in church with them. I had them quoted to me every way from Sunday, from Sunday school to youth group on Wednesday night to the prayer meeting on Sunday morning and worship practice and Sunday night church and the potluck fellowship and all the other things that we used to do almost every day of the week in church. If it weren't for the altar, as a young man, I found the altar. I would cry at the altar. I would stay at the altar. I would have the largest gathering of little old ladies laying their hands on me and casting every devil out of me you can imagine. That's good stuff. That's really good stuff. We would be with our youth group at the front of the church singing worship songs and crying out to God because Jesus was all we had. Friends, we need that again. Some of, some of you deal with fits of rage and anger in your life. I can understand this. Or maybe in your home. Friends, I understand that it's easy to stay away from people that are angry. And that's even what the Bible says, right? That they have no friends. A quick-tempered and angry person stirs up strife. Proverbs 25, 28 goes on to say that an angry person is like a city with walls broken down. 
unbridled anger and outbursts that are not dealt with as children, teenagers, and young adults soon blossom into a person with no defenses and ultimately destroying them emotionally, spiritually, and maybe even physically to themselves or others. And this is why God says he disciplines those he loves. Anger, if not taken care of, will be something that will fill the vessel. And you know what? The crowd was filled. Their vessel was filled with anger. The same crowd that Jesus could have worked for his purposes, if he's so chosen, was now filled with anger. Having anger in your vessel is no good. There's another person here that sometimes we don't see that in, in this crowd, but we know she's there. Mary is filled with sorrow. Let me ask you, what's your vessel full of? Consider Mary's sorrow. Proverbs 18, 14 says, A broken spirit, who can bear? People are so broken. Somebody taken. Something promised, a promise broken. Failures you cannot overcome. Sorrow comes so many different ways. And Mary is there. Imagine the feeling she's having in all of this as he is being brutalized and cast aside your very son. The one that you raised and held in your arms and grown to love as a man is now being injured and hurt because people are angry. Mary's vessel was filled with sorrow, certainly. Oh, I know that sorrow will come to us all, but you know what? So will pride. So will fear. So will anger. And of course, sorrow. What are you full of? Are you full of pride, fear, anger, or sorrow? What's in your vessel? Scripture says that Jesus became the vessel for all of it. Jesus goes to the cross, and if you're willing, he takes, and he takes, and he takes. I'm so grateful that Jesus was willing to allow his vessel to take on all of my stuff. The scripture says that Jesus became the vessel for all of it, friends, for you and for me. He takes our pride, he takes our anger and sorrow, and he takes it willingly to the cross. The brokenness of Jesus, the pouring out through sacrifice. Why does he do this? Because we can't kill our pride on our own. We can't take care of our anger or our fears on our own. We can't bury our sorrows on our own. Counseling can help to bring it to the surface. And we can be given instructions on how to manage or deal with it best, but never really take it away. A punching bag can temporarily relieve the stress, but it will be back tomorrow. A friend's touch can bring some comfort, but it, the pain will still be there. 
Friends, Jesus didn't only die and was sacrificed to heal your body or to give you Holy Ghost goosebumps. Can I say that? He didn't die to make you rich or to be your sugar daddy in the sky. He isn't interested in your position. He isn't blessed with your strength. He isn't bothered by your failures. He's not suppressed by your lack of anything. He's not pushed away by your inadequacies or your doomsday nature. You know what Hebrews 4.15 says? That he is touched with the feelings of your weaknesses. And he is not unmoved with how you're feeling. He is not despising you because you're angry. He is not put off because you might be fearful. He died on the cross to take on all those things in his vessel. We can't come to the altar and just get emptied out. Sometimes as believers, we might do that. Or we might say, God, forgive me. And, and we feel his release or the, the freedom that brings to us. So when we pour out all the yucky stuff, we've got to get filled up with something good. The living for God stuff, the life stuff, Holy Spirit power. This is without, uh, with, with, about being a disciple. It's about being a, a follower of Jesus. Now, being a believer never means that you are saved. Uh, uh, being a believer means that you are saved, I should say, but uh, allowing the presence of God to fill you with His Spirit and His goodness is another thing altogether. To continue living for God and to be filled with His power is something, this is good stuff, this is God's stuff. Being filled with the righteousness and the power of God is what God has for us. Not to just be poured out. Jesus went to the cross for that stuff. Oh, praise God, I'm so grateful. But man, to be filled with his power. He rose from the grave, friends. That's the good news. So I want to ask you, what are you full of? What's in your vessel? Jesus, the Bible says, became that vessel for us. He came in human likeness and for sin and condemned sin in the flesh so that we might become, the Bible says, the righteousness of God. To be filled with his power. No matter what you're facing or what you have faced, no matter what anxiety is there, I know I have seen, I have sensed and seen the presence of God move in life, in my life and others that can take and fill you and replace that emptiness from the stuff that we fill there on our own.